There's some other verses, like Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. It all belongs to God. I like the verse over in Haggai, where this prophet says, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? The silver and the gold. Um... 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. We belong to him. When we become Christians, you know, he even owns us. That's the whole issue of lordship. He owns us. We belong to him. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And I think that's the starting place, guys, to changing the way we think is to understand that it all belongs to God. If it takes some kind of a physical act, then I would say go get a, a blank quick claim deed and start filling it in, you know, and sign that quick claim deed and make sure that God has title to everything in your life. List it all if you have to. My wife and I did this one time. You listed all the contents of your house, list all the contents of your closets. All of your assets, list them all. And just to make sure that God, you and God have transacted business, sign the quit claim deed. Make sure that you've declared his ownership and control of everything. He gave it to you. And that's the second point. What you have was given to you by God. He not only owns it, whatever he, you have that's his, he gave it to you. We aren't self-made. Uh, he's the one who gave us the abilities and the gifts that we have and the strength and the health to use them profitably. Without his generosity and help, we would be incapable of acquiring anything. Take that 1 Corinthians 4.7 and memorize that verse, guys. If you don't do anything else as a result of today, memorize that verse. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What do you have that's not a gift? Then why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Why do you take credit for things that came from God? And I tell you, as businessmen, that's our biggest problem, is taking credit for what God does. If we can somehow understand that the credit belongs to Him, then and not take our, our, uh, ourselves so seriously and believe our own press, we're going to be further ahead in the game. One of my favorite passages is, is in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. And you better turn over to that one because you need to, you need to underscore this, mark it, uh, if you've never done this, for this particular passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and following. Leonard, that's in the Old Testament on page... Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 8. <clears throat> Beware. Don't you hate verses that start off like that? Very ominous, isn't it? Beware. Beware. Verse 17, chapter 8, Deuteronomy. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power 
and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as at this day. And then it goes on to say, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods. See, one of those gods is, is the god of mammon. It's called in scripture mammon. The tra literal translation of mammon, you remember in Matthew chapter 6, you can't serve God and mammon? The literal translation is money. You can't serve God and money at one and the same time. Either one, one or the other at any given time, not both at the same time. So God gave us what we have. And so not only do you, do you declare God's ownership, but you recognize that what you do have is a gift from his hand. James puts it this way, all good gifts come down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variance or shadow of turning. Everything that's good in your life came from the hand of a gracious God. And all we need to do is to receive it and say, God, thank you for it. I don't deserve it, and I didn't earn it. You gave it, and you can take it away. And as long as I have it, then you've got to go to the next principle, which says God provides for you if you will serve him. When God created man, he placed him in a paradise where every provision was made for him. In Genesis 2, the Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. I mean, what a great beginning we had, right? All of our needs were met. Uh, great place to live. When sin entered the world, man was forced to provide for himself by the sweat of his toil. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you that you shouldn't eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life and so on. That's Genesis chapter 3. When Jesus entered the world, he said that if men would again put God first in their lives, submitting to his lordship, then God would once again assume the responsibility for providing for his needs. For providing for his needs. That's what Matthew 6 says, isn't it? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added to you. What things? Well, go back and review Matthew 6, the second half of the chapter, from verse 25 on. He says, take no thought, saying, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to sleep? And so on. Those are, that's our living. That's our, our, our material resources, our, our material existence. He says, don't even think about it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Don't think about it. That's the literal translation. The King James, that's one of the few places where the King James is actually a more accurate translation than other translations. Matthew 6, 25. Take no thought. It isn't just don't worry or don't be anxious. That kind of waters down the meaning of the verse. It's more than worrying and being anxious. It's don't think about it. It's an issue of preoccupation versus occupation. Seek first his kingdom. Seek the extending of the kingdom of God. Men, what this means is that the main transaction we need to make with God after we be become his child is to make sure we understand what real business we're in. We're not in the brokerage business. We're not in the real estate business. We're not in the insurance business. We're in the people business. The other is our avocation. This is our real vocation. Seek first the extending of the kingdom of God on earth. And if you do that, 
If you will simply transact business with God and say, God, from now on, my job on this earth is to extend your kingdom by multiplying your rule in the hearts of mankind across this land and around the world, then God says, if you will do that, I'll tell you what I'll do for you. I'll assume responsibility for your care. I'll meet your needs. But in the, in the saying of that, guys, we like those verses like Philippians 4.19. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All of your needs. Don't forget that the defining of the needs is God's responsibility, not yours. We would like to come to God and say, well, God, since you've promised to meet my needs, I'm sure you're sitting up there wondering what they are. So here's my list. I need this and I need that and I need that. I'm sure God just smiles at us and says, oh, really? Uh, let's, let's do a little editing here. Let me tell you what the real list is. First, we'll scratch this one out. And we'll scratch this one out. You just thought you needed that. I'll tell you what you really need. What you need is, and you need, and you need, and you look at the list and you say, God, uh, somehow here, you know, this word processor has brought up the wrong file. I'm going to revert to the first version. I liked it better. But he defines those needs. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. We don't have to serve two masters, guys, because God's promised to provide. We may not like it. Why do men chase dollars? Why do they give themselves to the pursuit of dollars? I really believe it's because we don't understand this concept of God meeting our needs. Because men chase dollars, because I think they're afraid that if they really allow God to establish the level of their lifestyle, God is going to set it at a level they're unwilling to live at. And God says he doesn't do business with that way, with us that way. He wants to establish that level of our lifestyle. And sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. And then lastly, the, and I tried to reduce this just to four principles that we could get our arms around. We are to be stewards of God's resources. Definition. A steward is one who's been entrusted with the responsibility of caring for the resources of another. As I said earlier, you would say, as a businessman, a steward is an asset manager. You manage the resources of somebody else. If you acknowledge his ownership, then you acknowledge that what you have came from him. All right? Then you must conclude, therefore, that what you have, he's given to you temporarily to steward. And the Bible goes on to say someday we're going to give an account for it. Each one, it says, First Peter 4, should use whatever gift he's received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. That's what a steward is. God's grace in various forms. 1 Peter 4.10 If God is trying to reach the world and populate heaven, depopulate hell, doesn't it make sense to you that if that's his mission and if he owns all the resources, that our objective ought to be to get all of God's resources as possible Everything possible that belongs to God at work achieving God's objective so that we can accomplish the mission and go home to heaven, our real home? Doesn't it make sense? 
that's why I want to close today with this whole issue of, of, of having a pilgrim mentality. And I, I, I determined that I will do that. So I want to get on through this and talk about that important issue of giving, which is one of the big areas uh, that all of us have to deal with as Christians. And I want to talk a little bit about debt. Any questions on these principles? God owns it all. God gave us what we have. He promises to provide if we'll serve him. And we are to be stewards of his resources. And that the objective is to get his resources accomplishing his mission. So that we can stand before God someday and hear those musical words. Well done. Good and faithful steward. Servant. You've been faithful uh, in, in, in a little and I'll give you a lot. A lot of responsibility. God's going to reward us based on our level of stewardship. Any, any questions on those four principles? By giving. This is the one where they start throwing tomatoes at me. This is a hard one. I want to say this first of all, guys. Um, the reason we got to, we've, we've got to talk about giving is it is a major, major problem among God's people today. It's a major problem because of inadequate teaching. And um, I'd probably get in trouble with most of the pastors. Of the, I probably will get in trouble with most of the pastors of this town for saying to you what I'm about to say. But I think that most churches that I've been in, and I speak in a lot of churches myself, uh, and most denominations that I'm aware of do not teach this concept of stewardship biblically. They don't teach it biblically. And here's what I mean by that. The, the major teaching of most organizations, churches, denominations, fellowships, etc., is the concept of tithing. That's what is taught. That's the concept that's taught. And I must say to you, in all frankness, that tithing is not a New Testament concept. Tithing was a part of the law. Now, the reason this is such a problem is that our, our statistics show, in fact, I just, I brought an article along here because I've been using, uh, I've been using the statistic of about three to three and a half percent, but I just read an article right here and I'll quote it from American Demographics, June 1988. Adults aged 30 to 35 give only 1.7 percent of their pre-tax income to charity compared with 2.4% for all adults, according to a survey by this company, Yankovich, Skelly, and White. All right? It shows you that the baby boomers, if they make 35000 they give 595 bucks. Where's my accountant friend here? Give me a percentage on that. $595 out of 35000 I didn't convert that to a percentage. Compared to the rest of the populace, the older people, 840 for, for the total populace, 800, $840 out of 35,000. As it goes up, uh, you get up to 55,000, the amount increases only to 935 for the baby boomers and 1320 for, for all adults. And you get to the uh, higher level, the next one up, 150,000, the baby boomers still only give 2550 out of 150,000. Now, if, if I calculated this on another study once, the percentage goes down. So that says to us that the more you make, the less you give. Okay? 
Now that's that's borne out. Why do you think Jesus quoted uh, the widow's mite? That story pointed pointed brought that to our attention. That real giving, and I think it's still true today, guys. Most of the giving to the work of the kingdom of God is done by people of, that we would consider to be of average means, not by people who have uh, great levels of wealth. Does that say anything to you about why God doesn't seem to dump large amounts of material resources on his people. It does something to people. It has a deadly effect on many. And it causes them, as we said earlier, to withdraw, to become self-centered and selfish. When the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6 that the responsibility of those who have wealth is to give and to give and to give and to be liberal and generous and to do good deeds, and on and on it says. On it goes. I mean, 2.7% it's, it's sick, folks. Now, I, I've been on the receiving end of this for 25 years, and I want to tell you, it's bad. Every major Christian organization that I'm aware of, from the Navigators to Campus Crusade, is having to pull back right now because of uh, inadequate support. And guys, it isn't, it isn't because there's not enough money out there, because there's all that there is is out there. And it all belongs to God anyway. The problem is simply the misappropriation of God's funds. God's people are not using God's resources to accomplish what he intended those resources to accomplish. That's simply put the problem. Misappropriation. Mishandling of God's funds. And I don't think we realize, you know, what the price that God is going to exact from us when we stand before him and we must give an account, as in the parable of, of the... Of the, of the talents and the parable of the vineyard and the parable of the pounds parable after parable trying to get our attention and teach us the concept that someday we will give an account of the management of that portfolio God entrusted to us at our regeneration at the point we were re regenerated we became believers and God gives us this stuff and puts it in the portfolio now for a moment I want to take you back to the Old Testament and I want you to uh, uh, assume the mindset of an Old Testament uh, Jew. All right? In the Old Testament, um, under the law, there were basically two places you could put resources, revenues, income. All right? Uh, we'll call the one pot here, the one cup here, God's. We'll call the other one mine. Okay? Now, the law not only specified um, the amount that you were to put in God's till, but what was to be done with it. The law made provision for the widows and the orphans. The law made provision for the Levitical priesthood. Okay? And basically, tithe, literally translated, means tenth. Tenth. But it's deceptive because there, there was really more than one time. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 14, you'll find the second time. Then there were a lot of other things. Scholars disagree on this, but it's anywhere from 23 and a third percent to 33 and a third percent. So I tell people who insist on the concept of tithing, it's at least 20, it's not 10. And I, I want to ask, if you insist on the concept of tithing, what gives you the right to pick tithing out of the law and retain that and throw away the rest of it? If you're going to hold on to the concept of tithing, then you better follow, follow the Old Testament dietary laws. 
you better not eat, eat that ham sandwich for lunch today. You see, what gives us the right to pick and choose from this Old Testament law? What's the relationship between the New Testament believer and the Old Testament law? When Jesus said in Matthew 5, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, when was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled at the cross. What does the New Testament teach is the relationship of a New Testament believer under grace to the law? Tell me, anybody. What's, are, we to, are we still obligated to the law? That's my question. Yes or no? There's no in-between. Are you obligated to the Old Testament law or are you not? No. The answer is no. We are not obligated to the law. Now, every one of the, the uh, Old Testament uh, concepts and laws that God wanted to ensure were still followed today, have been, you take the Ten Commandments. Winston, that's the Decalogue, remember? Uh, the Ten Commandments. Every one of those has been restated in the New Testament in one form or another with the glaring exception of one. Does anybody know which of the Ten Commandments was not restated in the New Testament? The Sabbath, the keeping of the Sabbath. There is no Sabbath for the New Testament believer. I don't know who told you this, but the Bible does not teach that we're supposed to get together at 11 o'clock wearing a suit and tie on Sunday morning while somebody stands behind a box and preaches to us. It's not in the New Testament. The Bible does not specify. It is the Lord's day, but every day is the Lord's day for God's people. There's no difference. In fact, Colossians 3 says, don't let anybody try to tell you there's a Sabbath. So when somebody stands up and prays in your church, God, we thank you for this wonderful Sabbath day. It's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Friday night from 6 o'clock to Saturday night, 6 o'clock. Go to Israel. You'll find out what the Sabbath is. You can't even buy anything during that time. You just well go hole up in, the, in your hotel room because nothing goes on during that time. All right? So under the law, the question was, how much should we give? The law specified the amount. The tithe which varied anywhere from between these figures. And look up that second tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and read that sometime. We won't go into it here. Now, can you imagine for a moment, you're, you're a student of, of, of human nature, as, as am I. If you were in, can't you just see yourself saying, as you receive revenues, this is God's, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, 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 mine. This is God's, this is God's, this is mine, 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 mine. This is God's, this is mine, this is mine, 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 God's, this is mine. It's all divided up. Now, the law even specified what he, what he was to do with that money. Told him what to do with it. So can't, can't you imagine an Old Testament Jew sliding that amount over to God and saying, God, here's your cut. Now, what do you think was his attitude toward the remainder? Sure it was. This is mine. Now, God, you've got your cut. Don't come back for more. God, I've fulfilled my duty and my obligation. Now I can do whatever the fat I want to do with this. Now, you're no longer an Old Testament Jew. You're a New Testament believer living under grace, no longer obligated to the law, but still instructed by the law. And Jesus comes along and says, that tithing, I want to tell you, um, that was just sort of a picture of things to come, a shadow, a foretaste. Let me tell you what the real deal is. 
And in one fell swoop, Jesus eliminates one of these two pots. Guess which one got eliminated? <laughs> All right? So the question is, what is the... What's the standard of giving in the New Testament? What's the standard of giving in the Old Testament? The tithe. What's the standard of giving in the New Testament? Let's start by saying, what's the question? Well, the question is not how much should I give because who owns it all? God does. If it's all His and none of it's mine, that question is a moot question. It's pointless. It isn't how much should I give? Give it all because it all belongs to God. Well, then what is the question? The question is a stewardship question. God what do you want me to do with your question, with your resources? It isn't how much should... Do you know why most people allow themselves to be taught the concept of what's called storehouse tithing? Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse and the storehouse is the local church. And if you want to give over and above that, that's fine. We'll call that offerings. You know why people will listen to that and believe it and begin to practice it? One, it's the only thing that's taught. It's the only game in town. Number two, because they'd rather revert to this Old Testament model. They would rather say, God, here's your cut. Now I want to be able to do with the remainder whatever I wish. It's mine, 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 mine. And I can do with it whatever I want. I can buy houses, homes. I can buy VCRs and boats and motors. And I can buy airplanes. And I can do anything with it I want. And I can store up as much of it as I want and so on. Because after all, God, you're going to bless me because I am giving you your, your cut. Oh, Yeah. 2.7%. I mean, we haven't even made it up to the 10% level, even though it's not right. Well, if, if the concept here was the tithe, the question is, is there a standard of giving in the New Testament? And the answer is yes. Turn in your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians. This is one passage where it becomes clear. Chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brethren, 2 Corinthians 8, 1, about the grace of God, which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, I want you to notice that, have overflowed in a wealth of, underscore the word, liberality. Liberality. All right? Now, it goes on to say they gave according to their means as I can testify. But not only that, you see, there's, here's what I can give, God. Here's what it looks like on paper that I can handle. Here's what I can budget. He gave according to their means, as I can but beyond their means of their own free will. They gave beyond their means. Begging us, verse 4, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. My gosh, guys, when was the last time you, you ever cried out to God and begged Him for the privilege of giving to His work? Most people think they're doing God a favor by giving to His work. The opposite is true. 
I mean, what do you mean giving to God? It's his, remember? It's already his. If he wants it, he could just take it. And he does sometimes, doesn't he? God is doing us a favor by allowing us to give to his work. See? He allows us that means of participating in what he's doing in the world today to change the hearts and lives of men, women, and children all over the world in winning the lost and building up the saved. He's doing us a favor by allowing us to give. We're not doing him any favor. God is not lucky to have people like us on his team. God's really desperate. He's scraping the bottom of the barrel. He really is. To use people like you and me. Now there's another passage. Turn over to the next chapter. Chapter 9, starting at verse 6. The point is this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The law of the harvest. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 7, each one must, must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The literal translation of the word cheerful is hilarious. When was the last time you gave so generously and liberally that it, you just burst into hilarity. It was so much fun, it brought you so much joy, you could hardly contain yourself. Almost as good as a, an Aggie joke, you know. You heard the latest one? The Aggie that saw all the, the ads for um, uh, Caribbean cruises? So he went into a travel agency and he said, you got, you got any cheap ones, those Caribbean cruises? I said, yeah. She said, in fact, uh, you're from Texas A&M? Yes. We've got one for $5. $5? I, even I can afford that. She said, cash up front. He paid her the $5. She said, go through that door right, right there in the back. He walked through the door. Somebody hit him with a bat, knocked him out cold. When he awoke, he was floating strapped to a log in Galveston Bay, floating in Galveston Bay. So he's contemplating his cruise, and he sees on the horizon another log with another guy strapped to the log, and pretty soon they, flo you know, they float toward each other. And the other Aggie, another Aggie, of course, the other Aggie said, Hey, you, ser you suppose they serve any meals on this cruise? First Aggie said, no, I don't think so. He said, at least they didn't last year when I took it. Now, several concepts here in this passage. Let's, let's continue reading. Verse 8, God is able 
to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it's written, he scatters abroad, he gives food to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for great, underscore the word, generosity. Hey, this sounds like 1 Timothy 6, doesn't it? Same two words that Paul used in 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this world, charge them to do what? To be liberal and generous. Liberality, generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the rendering of the service not only supplies the wants of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. I mean, it's a win-win situation. You give, the recipients of those gifts thank and praise God. God blesses you, brings joy to your heart. It's a win-win situation. You can never outgive God. You can't ever outgive Him. So in the Old Testament, the question was, how much should I give? In the New, question, in New Testament, the question is answered. Give it all. So what's the question here? How should I steward it? How much should I keep, you might say, not how much should I give? The standard of giving in the Old Testament? The tithe. The double tithe. And then some. The standard of giving in the New Testament? Liberality and generosity. Now let me ask you, what's liberality? What does it mean to be generous? Can you measure generosity? Can you measure liberality? Pretty tough, isn't it? Why? It's a relative term. Liberal compared to what? That's why we've got to have a handle on the issue of comparison, because you're not comparison, comparing yourself with what everybody else is giving. You're comparing yourself with yourself. You're comparing yourself only with what God's entrusted to you. Let me ask you, do you know how to be generous and liberal to yourself? Say yes. That's the flesh. Do you know how to be generous to yourself? Of course you do. Then why is it we have such a hard time understanding what it means to be generous toward God? Now, I can't make a pronouncement on this, guys, but I suspect that generosity exceeds 2.7%. Wouldn't you say so? Did it ever occur to anybody that you could give more than 10 or 15 or 20%? Did it ever occur to anybody that we could give 30 or 50 you know what happens when somebody starts giving like somebody writes a book about them? Because it's such a rarity. You know the, uh, the, the story of R.G. Letourneau? He said if for most Christians the 1090 business was adequate, he just said, I'll turn it around. He said, I'll give 90 and live on 10. The 10 he lived on wasn't bad. But the point is he gave the 90. Let me give you a challenge. I can't support this from Scripture. There's no place in Scripture that says, here's the giving program for God's people in the New Testament. But let me just give you a challenge. It says here that you should have... Do, you make, need to make up your mind in verse 7. 
Each one should do as he's made up his mind. That says to me that planning is involved in giving. All right, if you're going to be an asset manager, you better plan the use of I mean, if you were managing somebody's portfolio as a broker, you better plan what you're doing. You better be very careful what you do. Well, now, these are God's resources you're managing. You need a plan. And so I suggest you sit down with your spouse and you come up with some sort of a giving program, a plan. Here's one possibility. This may work for you. You only have two ways to give out of the resources you get. You either have to give on a percentage basis or buy or decide on some amounts. Now, neither is better than the other. But I would say that most of God's people, most of God's people use a percentage system. That's okay. But you've got to decide before God. You've got to See, the reason we want to revert to, to type, we want to revert to the Old Testament system, is not only so we can use this any way we want, but we don't have to think. You don't have to think about it. When I got married, my wife's given me permission to tell this story. I mean, she had been taught this so well in her particular church um, that when she, when she uh, wrote her giving check, I mean, it was $32.19. You could figure out exactly what her paycheck was from, from, uh, from her giving. Never occurred to her to round that up to 33. It wouldn't. She would have been mortified to ever round it down. See, you talk about legalism, folks. That's legalism. $32.19. Hey, have a ball. You, uh, you ever have a party where you, you, know, you, you, you know how you feel when you're on vacation? All of a sudden, you know how money just kind of goes through your, your fingers? They're dependent upon the fact that when you're in some resort area, that uh, your attitude toward money is much different than when you're back home paying the bills. They're dependent on the fact that you're going to have a much more liberal approach. Oh, well, you only take vacations once in a while. Uh, there's always more where this came from. And most of us probably spend far more than we ever plan to spend when we go on those kinds of trips. So you know what it is to kind of throw caution to the wind and just be, just throw it out there. Hey, did it ever occur to you you could do that with God? Just throw some money at him. Not that it's going to earn you anything in terms of his favor. See, what he wants is your heart focused on what he's trying to do in the world. And he wants you to focus on the fact that he's doing you a favor by allowing you to be a part, to have part of the action. A cut of the pie. You can be in on what God's doing. And you can participate, and this is one way you can participate. And you can have a slice of what God's doing all over the world. My wife and I, in our giving program... We have it laid out so we're giving to people in foreign countries and ministries here and there and so that it keeps us with a world vision. Someday we, we, uh, we feel that uh, we'll see people in heaven from Mexico and from Asia and from Europe and from all over the world because of the particular avenues of giving that he's led us to in those arenas. So you can use a percentage or you can just decide on an amount. Okay? But if you decide on a percentage, a couple of cautions, don't choose 10. Don't choose 10. At least get off the 10% business by starting at 11 and not 3. How about starting at 11? I know a man whose plan is to increase his giving one percentage point a year. I don't know where he is now, up to 60 or 70% because he's been doing it for years and years and years. You know, another man 
whose plan was to get to the place where he's giving a million dollars a year to the work of God. That particular man is criticized for the kind of house he lives in. Most people do not even realize how much money the man gives away. The problem among us believers is we're constantly judging one another. You know, uh, because of that comparison problem. Judging the kind of cars we drive, the kind of houses we live in, the kind of suits we wear, it's terrible. So have a plan. Each one must do as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly. Don't do it because you you feel that you have to. That negates the whole joy of doing it. God says, stuff it in your ear. I don't need your money, friend. God does not need our money, gentlemen. He needs our lives. He needs our hearts. He does not need our money. If he wants to reappropriate it, he'll do it. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, some, let me see where I am here. There were a couple of verses that I wanted to, to bring to your um, attention on this. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. And then we've looked at the 2 Corinthians 9 passage. So the amount to give, the amount to give is liberal and generous. The problem is it's not measurable. We can measure the, the tithe. We can tick it off. We've fulfilled our obligation. And so guys, what you're going to have to do is come up with a plan and a program and get down on your knees before God, you and your spouse, and decide what God's going to have you to, to do. Just make sure that you take this matrix of liberality and generosity and use it as an overlay over all of your decisions. And simply ask yourself the question, whenever you're looking at your giving program, is it liberal, is it generous? Because that's God's standard of giving in the New Testament. Liberality and generosity. Use that as your matrix. Now, as you do this, the next question is, where do you give it? Where do you give it? Places for giving. Well, the scriptures teach a lot of things. Um, one place to give is to those who are involved in the work of uh, vocational ministry. Just as in the Old Testament, um, in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the body of Christ are well worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. One of the, and Galatians 6.6 6 says those who are taught the word should share generously with those who teach. So one place we're taught to give is to give to those who are in vocational Christian work. That's how they are to be sustained. All right? Whereas for most, uh, most men, God provides for the needs through their vocation. For those who are in vocational Christian service, he provides through the gifts of his people. So include missionaries. And remember, guys, you don't give to institutions, you give to people. You don't give to institutions, you give to people. Give individually to individual missionaries. And get involved in what they're doing. Get their letters. Pray for them. Share the letters with your kids. Get involved and feel like you're a part of what they're doing. If you give to somebody and they're not communicating with you, you know, then try to do something about that. I feel I... I feel an obligation to those who support 
uh, me in the ministry to which God's called me. I feel an obligation to communicate as often as I can with those people so they'll know what, it, what, what their, their investment is doing. And it's an investment. It's an investment in the work of the kingdom. The family is another area. In our culture, we're experiencing a tragic breakdown of, in, in this area of sharing. Husbands failing to provide for their wives, parents neglecting children, grown sons and daughters forsaking their elderly parents. It's condemned in Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And we, we, as our parents age, and we may need to step in and to pick, pick up the, uh, the reins and help them. Um, I had to do that with my mom. Uh, one of my sisters was in a real tight bind, and she's a Christian. No one had ever done this. She didn't know how to take it at first, you know, when we just started sending her checks. Because, see, it, our, our society says today that that's charity. It is. Charity is a good word, but it's become a bad word in our society. Charity. I don't accept charity. Well, then don't call it charity. Call it love. You know, call it help. The poor, Matthew 25, were confronted with one of the most exciting and yet sobering truths of Scripture. That's the one where it says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and so on. Lord, when did we do this? Inasmuch as you've done this unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And the poor are worthy of some support. Another one would be the Bible specifically points out the needs of the widows and the orphans. The Bible talks about meeting the needs within the body. Needs within the body. It is okay, guys, to just put money in an envelope and give it to a brother who has needs even if you don't get a receipt. That's okay. God still counts it even though it didn't go through somebody's books. Okay? Do you have questions on where to give? This is usually a big one. Lots of people want to talk about, you know, uh, what about all these mailings that come in the mail? And how do you handle all? Do you, do you guys struggle with that? Anything you want to talk about as to where you give and, and how much? Yeah, the local church does come in. Basically what you do is you sit down and the local church becomes one of the places that you get to, right? Second thing, consider in your giving program only programming, that is, only earmarking, a certain percentage of the monies that go into that account, like 60 or 70 percent. You know, so much to the church, so much to this, so much to that missionary, so much to this, uh, etc. The relief, world relief, the poor, whatever God leads you to give to. Only program maybe 60 or 70 percent of it. Well, what do you do with the rest of it? Leave it there. Have you ever, have you ever come up to a need that you wanted to give to, and you looked around and there just weren't any resources for you to be able to give to. It's, it's really fun for God to be able to come along and tap you on the shoulder and say, look, since you're my asset manager, would you please write a check on my account and put it over there? And guys, that's the joy of giving. That's the joy, being able to meet those needs in a spontaneous... Now, what we do is, if God hasn't led us to any, to any particular thing, if there's an amount that accrues, accumulates in there toward, during the year, by year end... We, d we dump it all. We determine by the, by the, uh, by the end of the, of the year what to do with everything that's in there. So we do clean it out every year. So uh, sometimes there's a, 
a surplus in there and we get to sit down we say God hasn't led us to anything in particular so we double or triple all the amounts that we give to all the other uh, areas that we give to question back here let me repeat the questions the, the first one is you give to one organization and you find yourself on multiple mailing lists from other organizations how do you deal with that number one it's a, it's a fact of our culture what I do is if I'm on a mailing list I really don't want to be on just simply be honest face it honestly uh, and write them a letter and say please take me off your mailing list uh, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't then the next thing you do is just throw it away all of us are going to get more stuff in our mailbox than we know what to do with folks there's a lot of needs out there every organization is is standing in the proverbial evangelical bread line with her hand out. Now, some refuse to do it. I find it very difficult to use that direct mail approach. I, ca I can't do it comfortably. Uh, even though I used to manage the direct mail program for a very large Christian organization which happens, which happens to be headquartered here in the city, I can't do it personally um, that way. Now, I do make an exception at the end of the year because I know that a lot of people... Uh, who re reviewing their thing at the end of the year and people want to know where you are and so usually toward the end of the year I will send out a letter and, and give some sort of indication of where we are with respect to our needs. Um, so I think you, you, you've got to... I, I don't think it's wrong. When I get all these appeals, what I do is I look at them and instead of getting angry at them, I say, God, I know these people. Some of these are... Some of these are hucksters, I know. But some of these are genuine needs, and I can't get to everything, even if I wanted to. And so what I do is I say, God, please, I don't feel you're leading me to give to this, but please meet their needs now right away. Just, and I don't even open. I only open the things that I, that I feel led to open, things I want to open. Does that answer your question? All right. Second question was, forgotten it already. I'm 48. You've got to understand. Okay. What about corporate versus personal giving? Ah. The scripture says um, to give out of all of your increase, doesn't it? My challenge to, to a business owner, a corporate owner, is to think very seriously. I don't think that to give only out of personal funds advocates any responsibility to give out of corporate funds, personally. As I've studied the scripture, I think the corporate falls into the arena of all your increase. I mean, if your net worth in that corporation has gone up, etc., the challenge I want to give you guys who, who are business owners is why, you know, if a traditional missionary is getting ready to go across an ocean to plant churches in foreign countries, where does he go for support? To the institutions, the traditional churches. So these traditional churches support their missionaries to go plant churches in foreign countries. Now, let me ask you, is the marketplace a legitimate ministry area? Are there as many needy people in the business and professional world as anywhere else? Sure there are. If it's a, leg a legitimate expression of ministry, why shouldn't believers who own and operate businesses consider supporting their own missionaries to their culture, which is the business world? There's a good place for corporate giving. See, is to take... Uh, our foundation ha is supported by about five different corporations who kind of treat me as a chaplain to their, to, their, to their businesses. And so we have corporate sponsors. I think we're up to five or six corporations who, who I guess they have us in, our, in their accounts payable program. The computer just spits a check out every month. See, that's a good challenge. And I think 
to sustain the ministries that are affecting the marketplace today, it's going to take that kind of commitment. Um, because the local churches, I've got two churches to give to us. They aren't very concerned about you guys in the marketplace. They may say they are, but when it comes down to where they give their money, the, the where they're giving it does not reflect any interest in this particular arena of ministry, the business and professional man. So my answer to you is, I can't, I can't say that, that I have a, a, a verse to absolutely back this up, but I, I just have the sense from Scripture that you probably ought to give from both. Because see, think about, think about the, the taxes that we pay, income tax. When are you taxed? You are taxed every time that money changes hands. See, when you pay money to somebody else, it's now taxed as income to them. When they take that money and give it to somebody else and buy some other goods or services, it's taxed again as income to them. Every time the money changes hands, see, so you, as it comes in, you can give as it comes into the corporation. Then as you take your personal salary out, it's changed hands again. And you can give again on it. Now, I know a lot of people that just throw it all in there at once and they just do all their giving out of there. Particularly if you're, a, uh, if you're an individual owner. You know, there's no corporation involved. It, what difference does it make whether you give out of one checkbook or another account? It really doesn't make any difference. I mean, resources are resources are resources. It doesn't make any difference to God. Uh, and it certainly doesn't make any difference to me. I never, I've never sent any checks back and said, I w wish you'd rather give to me out of another account. Uh, <laughs> um, guys, we need to talk for a few minutes about debt. And uh, a related subject uh, that I call lifestyle ceiling. We've got 45 minutes to get through this. Okay? Now, to better comprehend the extent of debt in our country today, uh, you need to understand government debt, business debt, individual debt. I just read some new figures. So these figures are probably five or six years old, so it's going to be more than this. But as of the writing of, of this, government debt, um, uh, the, uh, Congress has, has raised the ceiling to $2.5 trillion. It's now up to $3 trillion, isn't it? That's what I just read, I think, in Time Magazine. Over $3 trillion for government debt. All right? Business debt was um, $2.5 trillion as well. That's probably over three, like the government. In 1960, corporations paid $7.6 billion in interest. Uh, as of the writing of this at 2.5, they pay $200 billion in interest. That sounds bad, but guys, here's personal debt. Individual Americans owe more than three. It was three now, so it's probably three and a half, four. So more than government or corporate debt. The average American family spends four to six hundred dollars more than it earns each year. Personal consumer debt increases at the rate of $1,000 a second. The average American consumer carries $5,000 in consumer credit, in consumer debt, credit cards. Now, first of all, what is debt? The dictionary defines it as money or property which one person is obligated to pay another. Money that you owe to credit card companies, bank loans, money borrowed from relatives, the home mortgage, past due medical bills, and so on. That's debt. Now, what does debt really cost? This, I saw this exercise one time, uh, and, and it just was so astounding to me that I've got it down here in my notes to see if I can explain this. 
let's say that you have $5,560 in credit card debt. That's what the average is, or was. You owe $5,560 in credit card debt. 18% interest. Annual rate is $1,000. An annual interest cost of $1,000 on that $5,000. And let's assume for a minute that there's no tax consequence on the interest that, that you earned or spent. Number one, this first line, is the amount of interest that you, would, you paid over a 40-year span. Number two, what you would have earned if you had invested that $1,000. And the third line is how much money the lender earned from your interest payments. All right? You pay $1,000 a year, obviously, at the end of five, it's five, 10, 20, 30, 40, $40,000 over a, a, period, a period of 40 years on that $5,000. Now, if you had taken that $1,000 of interest per year and invested it at, say, 12.5%, something like that, that'd be pretty good if you could get that now. Um, five, at the end of five years, six, six, eight, nine, seven. Ten years, $19,000, 742. End of 20 years, $88,000. End of 30 years, th over $325,000, that $1,000 a year, would have earned. And at the end of 40 years, the staggering sum of a million, $148,947. But even more astounding is what that credit card company earned with your $1,000. You're paying them 18, remember? At the end of five years, he's earned $7,154. That's why Department stores would rather have you buy on credit. They don't want to, they don't want your cash. They make most of these big department stores make more money, you know this, from credit than they do with the actual uh, profit on merchandise. Uh, at the end of ten years, twenty three thousand. He's earned twenty at the end of twenty years, one hundred forty six thousand. Uh, at the end of thirty years, seven hundred and ninety, and at the end of forty years, four million. $163,213. Now, we, we need to comprehend what bankers have known for a long time, the incredible impact of compounding interest. That's $1,000 in interest a year based on a $5,560 debt on a credit card. So the lender's going to earn a total of over $4 million if you paid him $1,000 a year for 40 years. And so on. Now, guys, that's that's the fiscal the cost of debt. But more importantly, there, there there's a physical cost of debt. Debt extracts a physical toll. The burden of debt often increases stress, which contributes to mental, physical, and emotional fatigue. Creativity and relationships can be smothered by debt. Not to say anything about our availability to God. Many increase their lifestyle by employing debt. And that's what I want to talk to you about. What's the scripture say about debt? In Proverbs 22, 7, here's what it says. Learn why our Lord speaks so directly to the area of debt. Just, this is the Living Bible, just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. So debt in the Bible is considered slavery. That's Proverbs 22, 7. 
1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. That one was 1 Corinthians 7.23. Then, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but in the Old Testament, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 28, 28, where debt was considered a curse. Um, These blessings shall come upon you if you will obey the Lord, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. That was the command of Deuteronomy 28 to the nation of Israel. They disobeyed God. Indebtedness was one of the curses inflicted by the Lord for disobedience. And it says in Deuteronomy 28, It shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I charge you today, that these, these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher. You shall go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. Deuteronomy 28. So you, it was, a, it was a, considered a curse. And lastly, thirdly, the thing about debt is it presumes upon tomorrow. James chapter 4. We all ought to, ought to review James 4. About once a week. Um, James 4... 13, 14, goes on to say, whereas you do not know about tomorrow. You don't know about tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. Guys, we've got to be very careful about the issue of presumption. And debt presumes upon tomorrow. You're presuming that God is going to continue to, to meet your needs in a certain, in a certain way. Now, I just happen to think that the Bible teaches, when it says don't owe anyone anything, that we ought to start taking that a little more literally. Now, I realize, guys, and I don't want to get into a big giant discussion here because we don't have much time on the issue of, well, what about business debt and what about this kind of debt and so on. I'm sure, I'm sure that there are many exceptions to this issue. I'm talking particularly about consumer debt. I'm not trying to address, you know, whether you should... uh, I don't even want to get into the issue of whether you should mortgage your home, whether that's really a debt. Um, when you're talking about appreciating matters, you, uh, an appreciating asset, but I want to tell you, I know a lot of people down in southern Louisiana where I go to minister that had these appreciated assets called houses that all of a sudden they're willing to take like 30 cents and 40 cents on the dollar. Um, so you can't even presume upon that. You can't, you can't say, well, no, it doesn't make any difference because... I'll always be able to sell it. I do want to, I do want to give you this challenge. And I, I, I've been giving this challenge all across the country. I want to challenge you to figure out a way to get out of debt and to stay out of debt by the grace of God. To get out of debt. And particularly, I tell this to young people as they're just starting in their careers and their homes and families. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, don't go out there and... and Hawk, uh, get yourself into hawk up to your eyebrows just so you can have the latest car and to have a house that's decorated by a professional decorator and so on and so on and so on. There's nothing that says that you've got to have that little house in the suburbs. Sure, I know renting an, an apartment, well, Gord, that's just, you know, pouring money down a rat hole. So what? If you can't afford it, you can't afford it. It takes what you can get. 
And uh, there's nothing that says we have to have that. Uh, when my, my wife and I got involved in this issue, um, we um, uh, came up with a plan before God to try to get our home paid off. If I had it to do again, I would have put it on a 15-year mortgage, not a 30. So we're trying to accelerate by paying extra on the principal and uh, trying to get that thing paid off because we got this college years before us and, and that's some extra money that we would be able to put toward that. How do you get out of debt? Well, the first thing you do is pray. And you pray again. You pray a lot about it. You guys uh, are having financial problems with doing a lot of praying these days. Is that good or bad? The praying's good. It's sad that it takes what it does to get us to pray. Second Kings chapter 4, a widow was threatened with losing her children to her creditor, so she appealed to Elijah, Elisha for help, not Elijah. Elisha instructed the widow to borrow empty jars from her neighbors, and the Lord supernaturally multiplied her only possessions a small quantity of oil, and all the jars were full. And she sold the increased oil and paid her debts to free her children. Now that same God that supernaturally provided for that widow is interested in you becoming free of debt. That was 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. There's a trend emerging as people become committed to eliminate debt and to begin accelerating debt repayment. The Lord's blessed their faithfulness. And if you could just put a little bit of extra money per month toward the retirement of that debt, God's going to honor that. The second step in getting out of debt is to establish a written budget. Ugh. I mean, I hate the word, don't you? Uh, in, in the years that I've been counseling with people, few people in debt have actually been using a written budget. They may have had a budget neatly filed away in a drawer, but they've not been using any kind of a, a written budget, any kind of a records system. Uh, a, a written budget helps you in three areas. It enables you to plan ahead. It helps you analyze your spending patterns and assists you in controlling the biggest budget buster of them all, which is impulse spending. And there's the biggest guy to get under control is impulse spending. And so that's one of the things you can commit, commit yourself is to never buying anything impulsively. Always, uh, and getting some accountability from brothers, from your wife, you together, your spouse, and, and tell yourselves and try to begin practicing uh, never buying anything on impulse. If it's still there after you've prayed about it for a few days or months or weeks or whatever, uh, then consider then you have to list all your assets, everything you own, and you evaluate your assets to determine if there's anything that you don't really need that you could sell off to get out of debt more quickly. How about that boat that you're not using? How about that set of golf clubs gathering dust in the garage? Anything that you can sell. Number four, most people particularly if they owe a lot of money, don't know precisely what they owe. They don't. It must be human nature. If there's anything unpleasant in life, and I avoid it long enough, maybe it'll go away. But it's crucial to list your debts to help you determine your current financial situation. Also list the interest rate that your creditors are charging you for each debt because you usually want to pay off those charging the highest rate of interest first. And then number five, establish a debt repayment schedule for each creditor. 
Now, by the way, these are not my, I'll, I'll repeat that, establish a debt repayment schedule for each creditor. You know, I'm not smart enough now to have come up with all of this. This comes from a lot of different financial planners who have figured out ways to help those people who are in debt. Now, this debt repayment schedule is important because we all need to be encouraged during the struggle of getting out, in, 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 uh, out of debt. And so you need to see the numbers going down as you, you know, work your plan and you begin to get, get a hold on it. And the number six, if, if necessary, consider earning additional income. Uh, my wife and I went through a, a Bible study. Um, it happens to be called Crown Ministries. And we did, uh, this was several years back, maybe four, three, four years ago, and we determined at the time that she, because to, uh, to help meet the need for, for the college fund and all that, that she would go back, she's a registered nurse, she would go back and nurse uh, at least one day a week. And we determined that everything that she earned out of that would go into that college fund. And so that, that was something that God led us to do. Now, for you, maybe there's some way that you can earn some additional income that you could put toward the debt retirement. Obviously, number seven, accumulate no new debt. I mean, you just got to put a stop to it. And that usually involves what Burkett and all these other guys, uh, uh, you know, uh, have, have the cutting up of the credit card ceremony. And, uh, you know, whatever causes you to spend impulsively and uh, ordering your steps so that you don't go on your uh, date night and, and eat in the food court at the mall. Uh, you know, whatever it is that causes you to stumble in these areas, you figure out a way to accumulate no new debt. And a lot of people have to, for a period of time, work strictly on a cash basis until they get it under control. And then lastly, we've already talked about this one, be content with what you have. Um, we live in a culture whose advertising industries devise powerful and sophisticated methods of inducing us to buy. Make note of these. Studies have shown the more television you watch, the more you spend. Number two, the more you look at catalogs and magazines, the more you spend. And obviously, the more you shop, the more you'll spend. So the, if those are, you know, hard areas for you... Um, consider uh, changing those particular habits. Sorry. Uh, I want to I talk to you about um, the establishing of a lifestyle ceiling. A lifestyle ceiling. Now, this is an application of this issue of debt. It's an application also of the issue of giving and God's ownership and so on. What's a lifestyle ceiling? Well, it's a ceiling on your lifestyle. It's a, it's a, it's a control mechanism. It's a making a decision at some point in your life that you will not allow your lifestyle to escalate above a certain level. How do you determine that? Very carefully. Very prayerfully. You and your spouse, this is a challenge now. Again, this is an application. This is not biblical doctrine. This is an application. Sit down and play the what-if game. And it goes like this. What if God suddenly entrusted me with unlimited resources? What if? It's kind of fun. 
um, and start asking yourself a series of questions. Um, what kind of house would God give us permission to live in? What kind of car, how many cars would God give us permission to buy? What about the college fund? What about insurance? What about a retirement fund? What about travel and leisure? What about recreation? What about a recreational vehicle? A boat? What about, and you, and you go through your whole life and try to determine before God at what level he would allow you to be comfortable in terms of your spending patterns and your lifestyle. For example, when we moved to Knoxville, we, did, we sat down and went through this exercise to decide where we would live, the kind of house we bought, and so on. And I want to tell you guys, it doesn't make any difference what you do, where you set it, somebody will still compare themselves to it and still will criticize you. Now, being a a vocational Christian worker, I live in that proverbial glass house, and everybody thinks they can throw rocks at me. They can tell me what kind of house to live in, what kind of car to drive, what kind of suits to wear, what kind of suitcase to carry, for crying out loud. I have been criticized for all of the above and then some. I've just had to learn to live with it. I don't care what I do, somebody will criticize me. Um, Because people feel that if they're giving to the work of God, that they ought to be able to speak to how, how that's used. You see, don't make that mistake. When you give God's resources to some particular ministry he's led you to give it to, you give it to, to them with no strings attached. It's gone. If you are uncomfortable with that ministry, then don't give to them. But if you trust them, then, I mean, what difference does it make? Your responsibility ends at the point it exchanges hands and goes on to extend God's kingdom through some particular agency. All right? So now you know all of these things are, are, are under here. Okay? You, you, and see, you can't do that. You can't say, well, we're going to establish our lifestyle ceiling at a particular figure. Unless you, you, know, you use uh, some, some sort of uh, inflation to decide what it would be as the years go on. It's kind of a subjective thing. Now, here's the challenge, gentlemen. Once you've determined what, generally what this is going to be, you commit 100% above the ceiling to the, to the uh, work of the kingdom. And guys, if you don't do something or something similar to this, you're going to spend your whole life in frustration. Because as you go on in your career, you know, the studies show that chances are you're going to increase and the level of your income is going to increase. Now, the problem with us is as our income increases, the lifestyle increases. And and so where does it stop? The question is, how much is enough? When does it ever stop? When does it stop? How much is enough? If you don't do this, you know what you're going to do? You're going to end up negotiating with God, trying to make deals with God. You ever do this? God, if you just help me make this deal, I'll see that you get a bigger cut. You ever do that? Um, you ever wonder why God doesn't give you some of those deals? Because maybe one time if he... I know some guys to whom this has happened. God did come through for them. And you know what they did? They reneged. Because all of a sudden, the chemistry again. Once the cold cash warmed the heart, 
You see, the transformation began, and all of a sudden it was, boy, God, you know we're really tired. Wife and I, we, we, we really need a weekend away. And uh, you think it'd be okay if we take a cruise? Not a long one, just, you know, a week. Not two weeks, mind you, Lord, just a week. You know, we want to be conservative here. Or what else, whatever else. We, we renege and we begin... I cannot tell you that over the 25 years I've been in the ministry how many times guys have said to me, Gordon, you really need to pray for my business because, boy, if this thing goes down, vision's going to get a big cut. You know how many of those checks I've gotten? Zero. Yes. <laughs> I knew you'd do that to me. I anticipated that one. Wednesday. You bet I did. Fervently. <laughs> a lot of good it did. <laughs> Does this make sense to you? It's a, this is a hard exercise, guy. the, see, guys. Guys, the problem is, the, 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 if you don't do this, this the, the thing is going to... It's, it's a moving target. You know? You always want to push the line just a little bit more. You, you really don't want to live on the edge. You don't really want to live uh, in, uh, by faith where you're... You're trusting God and you're committing as much. You're not really committed to the idea that the objective is to get as much of God's resources, accomplishing God's mission as possible so we can get the job done, so we can go to heaven where we really belong. Oh, it's... Okay, the, the question is, what opportunity do you have? Do you, do you cast this in concrete? Absolutely not. But you've got to start somewhere, guys. And as your life changes and you have more kids, and I mean, there are going to be some things you, didn't, you won't even think about. A 23-year-old guy is not even going to remember the things to put under here until he gets to a place where, oh my gosh. But the general principle is still there. You, you just have to make the decision that by God's grace you're going to put some sort of a limit that it's not realizing that the more you make, the less you're going to give. How do you combat that? going through some sort of an exercise like this where you can help cap that and say to God, God, I really, I want to be one of those, those adventurous few who really live a life of faith and who really get involved and live my life in, a way, in such a way that, that as much of your resources do get to work accomplishing your mission. Why? And this is our last subject. Turn to 1 Peter 2. Maybe we'll do it if I can ever find my notes. First Peter chapter 2, someone read verse 11. <coughs> Loudly enough we can all hear it. Alright. The word that's used here the two words are aliens and exiles, strangers and pilgrims. As an introduction to this, let me ask you guys, um, when was the last time you thought about heaven? Let me ask you this, are you ever homesick for heaven? Let me ask you another one. Where would you rather live? Here on earth 
or in heaven with God. This verse, 1 Peter 2.11, uses these words, aliens and strangers. King James says strangers and pilgrims. J.B. Phillips says strangers and temporary residents. Listen to this verse from the King, from the uh, Living Bible, Ken Taylor's paraphrase. Dear brothers, you are only visitors here. Since your real home is in heaven, I beg you to keep away from the evil pleasures of this world. They are not for you because they fight against your very souls. Guys, I think as a final application of some of these concepts, what we need to ask God to help us develop is what I call the sojourner mentality. And it's a mindset. It's not a location that you arrive at. It's a mindset. It's how you think, how you perceive your life. Let's define it first of all. Sojourner, as a noun, is a temporary but sometimes extended stay or a stopover or a visit. That's what sojourner is defined as. As a verb, to reside with temporarily as a guest, to stay, stop, stop over, tarry, or visit. That's a sojourner. An alien is, if you look it up in the dictionary, is a foreign-born resident. A pilgrim is defined as one who travels to a shrine or holy place in devotion. Now you begin to get the idea here. Ken Taylor was right. We are only visitors here. Where? Here on earth. We are simply visiting planet earth. We are the real ETs of this earth. We're described in Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorites. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 11. These all died. After talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, it says at verse 13 of chapter 11, Hebrews, These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar and having acknowledged, listen, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. A believer is a person who should be seeking his real homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A city. We're sojourners on the earth looking forward to a better place. And 1 Peter 1 says we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. That's 1 Peter 1, 7. Now think of that, guys. It's like we're... We're banished from heaven for a time. We're exiled to the earth for a period of time, waiting to get back to our real home. What are some other terms for sojourner? Foreigners, tourists, transplants, displaced persons, a band on the run. They all seem to communicate the same thing. We are foreigners living in a land that is not our own. We're staying a short time in a strange place. For Christians, men, earth is not our home. It isn't our home. 
Heaven is. Philippians 2.20 says our commonwealth is in heaven or our citizenship is in heaven. When you got saved, you got a new passport. You exchanged your passport of earth for the passport of heaven. You're no longer a resident of this earth. You are not in this, this comfortable, familiar place called earth on your way to this very strange place called heaven. You're in this strange and uncomfortable place called earth on your way to your real home, which is in heaven. And gentlemen, what happens to us is as we go out there in the business world, transacting business, handling money, is we're going to get in trouble if we carry two passports. You cannot effectively live for Christ with your passport of heaven in one breast pocket and your passport of earth in the other. That's what it means when you can't serve God and money. You've got to turn one of them in. And you've got to live what you really are. To put it in military terms, I know, I know that you'll disbelieve this, but four of the longest years of my life were spent in the Marine Corps. All right? Now, one of the things that, that, that you saw in, in, in wars like the Vietnam War is... Uh, to, to, to put it in military terms, we're an army, right? What kind of an army are we? Are we a standing army making a frontal assault? No, I don't think so. I think we're more like guerrilla warfare. All right? You get in this helicopter, all right? And, and you're flown deep, deep into enemy territory and dropped off. And then you live. And guys, that's exactly what it means to live as a sojourner on this earth. We are in enemy territory. We're deep behind enemy lines. We've been dropped off and we're only here for a temporary time. We exchange our passport. Um, time, you see, is like being in a motel. Eternity is home. No one goes to a motel room and begins to plan how to redecorate that motel room. Why? You know, no add-ons. You know, we could knock this wall out here and push it back. We change this wallpaper. You don't do that when you go to a motel, do you? Why? You're only going to be there a short time. Sometimes you have to move to the discount suite. And I know some of us are living in discount suites on this earth. Sometimes God gives us really first-class Hyatt Regency treatment. But guys, God never intends room service to replace home-cooked meals. Sometimes God gives you the little mint on the pillow in life and turn-down service. But most of the time, he doesn't. You're only there for a little while. And you didn't carry all your luggage with you when you went on that trip. Did you ever know the words? When I first became a Christian, there was a, a popular gospel song. Some of you will remember it. Um, and the words to it went like this. This world is not my home. You remember it? We're just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel of home in this world anymore. You know why we don't sing that song anymore, guys? Because it's not true. 
It's not true. This world is very much our home. We've set up permanent stakes in enemy territory. We've built mansions in foreign soil. This is only a temporary stop for us on our journey through life to our final destination, which is heaven. One of the problems with it, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, is we don't have any memories of heaven. You see, if you... This is why we don't think about heaven very much. I, I asked my daughter... She's now 19 and in college. I said, Renee, when she was 17, I said, Renee, um, do you want to go to heaven someday? I said, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? Yes. Do you want to go there someday? She said, oh, yes. She said, but not right now. You know, I couldn't falter for that because... I mean, how many of us at our age, I don't care what age you are, how many of us would say to God, yeah, God, I really do want to go to heaven, but not yet. Not yet. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 9, I think it is, yes. This is the only thing you got to go on with respect to heaven, guys. The Bible does not tell us really what is... I mean, we get glimpses. The streets of gold, you know, the uh, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, etc., etc., but we don't really know what heaven's going to be like. We don't have any memory of it. We have nothing to compare it to. And this is all God gives us to go on. Verse 9, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Guys, is it worth it to go through the agony of that lifestyle ceiling? Is it worth it in life to be faithful to the Savior who, who shed his blood for you? Is it worth it to live your life for the sake of the kingdom and to give your life to people rather than to things? Is it worth it? Will it make any difference? The answer is yes. It makes all the difference in the world. You're answering two questions with your life. One, where will you spend eternity? That question will only be answered in terms of your relationship to Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here in this seminar today that does not have an assurance of his relationship to that Savior, I'd appreciate it if you'd see me or somebody before this day is out. You need to know that you're going to heaven. It's the most wonderful thing that could ever happen to you. It's to know for sure that you're going to heaven. And you can know. But the second one, for those of you who are saved, the rest of your life you spend answering the second question, what's eternity going to be like for me? What will be the quality of my eternity? We need to struggle with the fact that how we live our lives as believers is going to make an immense difference when we stand before, before God and we open that portfolio and begin to give an accounting of how we stewarded his resources. And then on the basis of that, God begins to hand out our reward. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3 that some are going to suffer loss of reward. Is it worth it? Absolutely. It's like God is saying to us, look, eye has not seen, ear ha it hasn't heard. It, you can't even conceive how wonderful heaven is going to be but he says parenthetically trust me it's really going to be great trust me because I'm going to make it worth your effort I'm going to make it worth your effort heaven is our home the earth is not learn to live life with a pilgrim mentality 
This is a motel room. You're only here for a short time. What's 70 years compared to eternity? Don't be short-sighted. All right, we got a few minutes before we um, we end. Let me just open it up to uh, for some discussion, and then we'll break for our lunch. Good material. I've seen it, and I've gone through some of it, looked at some of it. It's pretty good. Oh, the, the question is, uh, Burkett's material on business by the book, you know, I think uh, I could recommend that material. All right, the question is, what is my understanding of giving to non-Christian causes? Let me put it like that. Um, in one respect, I don't think the Bible makes any distinction. And when it says meet needs, it doesn't mean just meet needs of... It doesn't say meet the needs only of those who are believers. I think it's, it's one of those things where you just have to, to, to pray and get God's guidance. Some people feel inclined to give toward things like United Way and so on and so on. Others do not. Um, in, in my giving program, I feel that... that